you know, one of the things I love about the Yakima Valley, uh, you know, depending on where you grew up, maybe you didn't grow up in the Yakima Valley, you're new to the Yakima Valley, welcome. One of the things I love about the Yakima Valley is I love the fact that we have four very distinct seasons. I love that we've got winter, and, and, and you get into winter, and you get excited for the first snow, and then as soon as that one comes, you're ready for spring. Spring comes, you feel good, you get baseball going, those sorts of things, and then you move into summer, and you're like, ah, you enjoy the 100-degree weather for about three days. Um, and then when, when, when summer's winding down, you get excited for fall because there is a specific—football is really good, too, I will say that. But there is a very specific dessert that comes out during fall time that is the best dessert on this wonderful earth that God has given us. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, I like my ice cream and I like my cake. Good for you. I'm not judging you. I am praying you come to the good side. Uh, But there is something incredibly better than ice cream or cake. Before I identify what this incredible delicacy is, I do want to offer you a warning, though. Because it is possible, it is possible to take something that is good, take something that is is perfect, in an effort to try and make it better, you add something to that perfect dessert and you ruin it completely. All right? For example, okay? Like, you know when you go watch a really good movie? And you're like, man, this movie was great. And then they come out with a sequel. And you're like, you just ruined the whole thing. Right? Like, like Home Alone. Now, I'm a child of the 90s. So Home Alone, Macaulay Culkin, Kevin. You know that video, that movie? Like, I don't know why they had to make a number two or a number three to that. Like, seriously, are you really going to leave your kid at home twice? Let alone three times? Like, you ruined it. It just ruined it. You know, the first one was so good. What about The Matrix? Like, the first one, like, I think I figured out what was going on. And then the second one, I'm like, I have no clue. I got lost someplace back, somewhere else. Or, uh, or what about this one? Uh, the movie Taken with Liam Nielsen. You know, when he says, uh, I've got a very particular set of skills. Again, like, you get your daughter kidnapped. Is it really likely for two more movies, you're going to get someone else in your family kidnapped? It's like, come on. Let's just be, you're ruining it. All right. So this best dessert that you find at this time of the year, pumpkin pie. Pumpkin pie. Deliciousness in a pie. Now, I will say I've never met a pumpkin pie I didn't like. But the one from Costco is probably top notch. It is number one, the best pumpkin pie on the face of the planet. But again, can we just do a little real talk here? This is serious. When you've got this piece of deliciousness in front of you, do not ruin it and waste it and destroy it by covering it with whipped cream. Like, I don't don't know why people do that. I don't know why people decide to cover that with, you are ruining perfection. There's nothing you can do to make a piece of pumpkin pie any better. It is the best dessert. It is the best breakfast. It is the best. You don't have to add anything to it. (sighs) I got that off my chest. 
If you have a Bible, I'd invite you to open your Bible. We're going to be in the book of Galatians. If you are uh, not very familiar with your Bible, uh, I would say if you want to find the book of Galatians, you can open up your Bible to the second half of the book, and you'll see uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, Corinthians, and then you will find uh, the epistles, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Uh, in addition, in your Bible, uh, you, the uh, God gave us a table of contents. So you can turn to the table of contents on the second page, and it'll tell you exactly where the book of Galatians is. Uh, we started uh, a series last week. We're going to have um, a couple weeks in front of us where we're going to begin to have some conversations about what it looks like for us to be a, uh, to live a gospel-centered life. For us as a church to have the gospel be the foundation, the core, the anchor of everything that we do and everything that we believe. We, we took this idea last week out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church that honestly is not very much different than we are. And he's writing to this church and he's writing to them about all these issues that are going on in the church. He's writing to them about, about divisions in the church. He's writing to them about, about sin. He's writing to them about, hey, this is strategy for your church. Here's how you need to organize and, and function. And he's having all these conversations that are relevant. And then he comes to 1 Corinthians 15. He says, I've told you all of these things about all these other conversations you guys are having. And let's come back to what's of first importance. Let's come back that all those other things are good, but they're not the priority. They're, they're not number one. Number one, and this is what he said. First Corinthians chapter 15. You don't have to turn there. Paul says, for I delivered to you as first importance that which I also received. And here it is, the gospel. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scripture. And that's what we're going to be looking at for the next couple of weeks, having these conversations about how we keep the gospel at the core of everything that we do. When we think about our faith, when we think about our life, when we think about our church, how do we keep that message of what Jesus has done, the foremost thing, so we're not being uh, uh, distracted by things that are good but not most important. How do we keep this being the core thing of our, our life and our church? And how does that begin to change us? So last week, uh, one of the things I did is I said, I, I'm going to give you guys some homework. Uh, I don't know how many of you guys actually did this. I know a couple of you did because I texted you and I said, I want your answers. So some of you gave me an answer. Your homework was, uh, in your own words, how would you summarize the gospel in, or, excuse me, in 50 words or less? If you had 50 words to tell somebody what the gospel is, uh, what would you come up with? Here, here's what I had. I shared this with you last week. I had Jesus, God in the flesh, Fulfilling scripture, died in place of sinners because of his great love, and rose from the grave, offering eternal life, a, a, eternal and abundant life to those who put their faith in him. Uh, in addition to uh, my example, we've got a couple other examples from some folks in the church. Go ahead and show the next slide. Um, and you can read through those. I'm not going to read through all of them because uh, uh, that is 250 words that if I read, we will go late in our sermon today. And I want to be honoring of your time. So uh, you are welcome to read those. Uh, the idea is, 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 this is why it's important. Because the gospel is a matter of life and death. The gospel is a matter of life and death. The gospel is the thing that will, ch when we want change in our life, when we want to grow, when we want to overcome, man, we don't have to look any further than the gospel. When you're looking at having a fulfilling marriage, when you're looking and saying, God, how can I be better in my work? How can I do these other things? Listen, 
You don't have to look any further than the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is why we have to understand very simply in our own words, hey, this is what the gospel is. And with that basic understanding of the gospel, uh, that it's about Jesus and his sinless life, it's about our sinfulness, it's about him dying on the cross in our place, about him uh, being buried and raising from the grave, conquering death, and us putting our faith in him. That's the gospel. And with a basic understanding, I want to turn our attention to Galatians chapter 1. In fact, Galatians chapter 1, a little background of this book. This was uh, the Apostle Paul's very first letter that he wrote uh, that's recorded in Scripture. Uh, Paul had been on a missionary journey, and he had been in the area of Galatia. Um, and he had preached the gospel to the Galatians. And, and people received the gospel. They said, hey, we love what you're saying. We're going to respond to that. And so Paul planted a church there in Galatia. That's who he's writing to, these, these Christians at the church in Galatia. And this is why I want you to understand why it's so important, why I'm making such a big emphasis on you having this summary of what the gospel is. Okay? Because I want you to know it. I want you to memorize that little description of the gospel. I want you to know it like the back of your hand. Like you know it so well. It just uh, pours out of you. That you center your life around it. Because, listen, we all have this tendency to move away from the gospel. We all have this tendency, even if you are a Christian. We have these tendencies to revert back to religion. We have this tendency to understand, okay, I get it by faith I come to Jesus. But even though I understand that, we come back to saying, well, yeah, it's Jesus. And you have to go to church. And you have to be a good person. And you have to read the Bible. And you have to do all these things. And we begin to add to the gospel and move away from the simplicity of the gospel itself. In fact, this is what happened to the church in Galatia. These people, they placed their faith in Jesus. They received the gospel. And less than a year later... Paul hears some alarming, uh, some alarming news. And so Paul writes this letter, and he has this very brief introduction. He skips most of the formalities that characterize Paul's writing, and he jumps in in verse 6. Here's what he says. I am, and I want you to catch the emotion, he says, I am astonished. He says, I'm, I'm appalled, I'm bewildered, I'm, I'm dumbfounded. You hear the emotion that he's writing with. He says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Remember, he's writing to Christians. He's writing people who have accepted the gospel as the foundation of their faith. And now he's saying, I am surprised that you are turning to a different gospel. Verse 7, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one that we have preached, let him be accursed. That right there is a huge statement that Paul just said. He said, listen, if anybody else comes and preaches another gospel to you, even if it is an angel, that person is lying. I think about that verse and I, and I think, how, how do the Mormons or the Muslims, like the foundation of their faith is that an angel came and preaches another gospel to Joseph Smith and to Muhammad. And I'm looking and saying, listen, this is what the scripture says. That if anybody, even an angel preaches another gospel to you, he should be a curse because he's lying. And then Paul repeats his statement for emphasis in verse 9. He says, as we have said before, 
So now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you have received, let him be accursed. This is a big deal. And in fact, I only have one point for this entire message, so maybe we'll get done early. Maybe we won't. My, my, my simple point is that as Christians, we have to reject anything. As Christians, we have to reject anything, and we must fight to reject anything that distorts the simple grace and beauty of the true gospel. That anything that would, would be contrary to, to the grace and the beauty and the truth of that simple gospel of, of Jesus dying on the cross, raising from the grave, giving us life if we put our faith in him, if it, we have to reject anything that is contrary to that. See, in Paul's day, there in Galatia, there was a, a group in the early church. Again, Paul was preaching to these uh, Galatians, and so these were all new Christians. They were all new believers, uh, but they all came from a, a Jewish background. And according to a uh, Jewish background, they were raised that they had to be obedient to the law. They had to be obedient to the Old Testament commandments. And so for them to be close to God, for them to obtain God's favor and God's blessing in their life, they had to follow all of these rules. And if you follow the rules, then God blesses you. And so here's these Christians, after they have heard about this gospel based on grace, after they've heard what Jesus has done in their place, and they receive that, they decided to keep some of that old law mentality. And chief among them, chief among the old mentality was circumcision. Uh, circumcision was a primary distinguishing mark of the Jews of that day. This is what set the Jews apart from the rest of the world. This is what was a symbol that they were submitted to God. And so these, these now if you're curious uh, exactly what circumcision is, I don't really have time to go into detail this morning, but I have empowered Jacob Heed with all of the knowledge about circumcision. If you want to stick around after service and ask Jacob, uh, he probably has charts and diagrams and can go into detail for you. So just see Jacob after service. Uh, uh, Paul's talking to these people that they understood, okay, Jesus is the answer. And now they're taking it and they're adding something on top of it. They're saying, well, yeah, it's Jesus plus doing these other things. These people were saying it's not wrong to believe in Jesus. Uh, it's fine to believe in Jesus. It's wonderful. Actually, it's probably necessary to believe in Jesus. But in addition, if you're going to be right with God, you have to add, add whipped cream on top of the pumpkin pie. You've got to have the sequel to try and compare with the first, the original. And no longer were these people uh, teaching a gospel that is holy and utterly dependent on grace. Now it's a gospel with grace plus this. Grace plus that. Grace plus circumcision. Grace plus food laws. Grace plus Sabbath laws. Doing these different things. And I want you to notice what Paul calls this. Verse 6. Paul calls it a different gospel. Verse 7. He says this is a distorted gospel. Verse 8, he calls it a, 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 a contrary gospel. And I think my favorite word of those was distorted. That is, it a distorted gospel. Which means uh, that they have taken the gospel that's supposed to be about grace, and they've reversed it. They've made it the polar opposite of what it was intended to be. They have reversed the flow of the gospel. The gospel is supposed to be all about grace. They've taken and turned it around and said, no, we're going to make it all about what you do. In fact... 
Again, notice the wording that Paul wrote. Verse 6, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you, that you are deserting the gospel. Now, I never had the privilege, privilege of serving in the military, but I do know that in military terms, deserting is a big deal. If you desert, like, like, like that word brings shame over the one who would desert their call uh, for their country. And Paul uses this word to say some are deserting God who called them. Some are deserting the gospel of Jesus Christ. They are falling away. They are taking what, what Jesus has done on the cross and they're shrinking it. They're making the sacrifice that Jesus made insufficient. They're taking the gospel, they're diminishing it, they're devaluing it. And this is why I want to take these next few weeks to have these conversations that we be grounded, that we be centered on the gospel. Because the gospel, this is what the gospel teaches us. The gospel teaches us that we build our faith on the fact that God saves us and that God blesses us as a free gift of grace. Unmerited favor, something we didn't earn. Jesus did in our place. We didn't earn it. It's not because we're awesome that Jesus decided he's going to go to the cross. No, he did it out of grace, out of love. And it's something that we only receive by faith. And as Christians, we understand in response to that, in response to what Jesus has done, now we do good works out of gratitude. And that's what the gospel teaches. But this distorted gospel, this perverted gospel, it reverses that. And it says, listen, we have to do some of these good works. We do these good works. And then in response, then God saves us and God blesses us in response to the good works that we have done. And again, that destroys the work of cross the, the work of christ it takes what christ did on the cross and says that's insufficient that doesn't matter because i have to add this all this other stuff i have to have the whipped cream on top to make this sufficient now again let's just talk here for a second i'm going to guess that there's not, not many of us in here today that are really struggling with this idea of circumcision or food loss I'm going to guess that some of those things that the Galatians dealt with about adding to the gospel are not things that we add to the gospel, right? But we still have this tendency to drift away. It's the same problem that they dealt with that we still deal with today. That we drift away from the gospel, we begin to add to it and say, listen, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to do all these other things too. And usually, in our day and age, we, we add to the gospel in one of two ways. Where uh, instead of uh, anchoring our faith in the gospel, we feel the need to either pretend or perform. We pretend or perform. Here's, here's what I mean by pretend. For us to understand and receive the gospel. For us to understand what Jesus has done for us. The first thing we have to do is come to terms with our sinful nature. We have to come to terms that we are sinners. We have to recognize that the rabbit hole um, goes a lot deeper than we realize. And that our sin affects our, our, our character, our behavior, that we are bent towards selfishness, that we're bent towards pride, we're bent towards arrogance. And truthfully, it's not very fun for us to admit those things. Truthfully, it's not very fun for me to admit, man, I don't have it all together. It's hard for me to be transparent and tell you, man, I struggle in these areas, and I know I do, but, but I just try and have a positive outlook on life so people think everything is good about me. 
It requires, for us to recognize our sinfulness, it requires that we uh, confront the complex web uh, of compulsive attitudes and beliefs and behaviors that we have about ourselves. And honestly, sometimes that can be a crushing weight to realize that we aren't that awesome. We aren't as awesome as we think we are. And so to compensate for that, we begin to pretend. We pretend that we're better than we really are. That's what pretending is. It's imagining that we're better than we really are. And here's, here's what that looks like. It looks like maybe it comes in the form of dishonesty. Where, where we look at maybe the, the, the stuff in our life, and we're like, well, I'm not really that bad. Like, I, like you know, I'm not really that bad. I'm, but I'm not that bad. Or we do this, which is just horrible. We do the comparison factor. Where we look and say, well, maybe I'm bad, but I'm not as bad as that person. Like, look at them. I mean, how many, how many times do we see that in the church, with our families, uh, it, with our ex-spouses? Uh, Man, I'm not as bad as them. It's comparison. It, it, it is us pretending that we're better than we really are. We make excuses where we do something dumb, we do something wrong. We're like, well, that's, I'm not really that way. That was just an, I'm not really that, but that was an accident. It's an excuse. Or maybe we, we have this uh, false righteousness. Where instead of acknowledging our brokenness, we're like, well, look at all the good things I've done. Like, you know, I, I, I gave that guy in the street corner five bucks. And I, I did this and I did that. I helped the old lady across the street. Oh, look at all the good I've done. I'm a good person. And we do this because we don't want to admit how sinful and needy we really are. And so we spin the truth in our favor. That is pretending. The second way that we distort the gospel is we perform. Listen, this is where the Galatians were. This is what they were doing. Is they were saying, for us to come to the gospel, again, we have to recognize our sinfulness. And the second thing we have to do is we have to recognize uh, and become more aware of God's holiness. So here's we. We're on this downside. We're, we're sinners. And on the other side, here's God up here. And God's perfect. And God's holy. And God's righteous. And God's all these things. And the challenge in us recognizing how good and how perfect and how righteous God is, is it begins to, we begin to understand how we fall short of all that God is. How we fall short of his standards. And it begins to confront us with uh, God's holy displeasure towards sin. Because here's God is up here. Here's God righteous and holy. And we're not there. And so if we're not rooted in God's acceptance of us through Jesus, we compensate and we try and get ourselves up to the level that he's at. We try and earn our way to to get there. It's kind of like living life on a treadmill. You're running, 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 chasing, 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 trying to do enough so you can get up to the level that God demands of us, which is perfection. And so we try and gain God's favor by living up to his expectation or at least living up to our mistaken view of God's expectations. Now, right now we're talking theoreticals. We're talking about we have this tendency to either pretend or perform instead of trusting what Christ has done for us and allowing our life to be centered on the gospel. And I want to explain very practical exactly what we are talking about. I want to be real practical about our, our, to reveal some of our tendencies to either perform or pretend instead of anchoring our life on the gospel. So, to discern our subtle tendencies to distort the gospel towards pretending. Here's a question I want you to ask yourself this morning. 
Here's a question I want you to write down, and I want you to have uh, something that you can ask yourself on a regular basis, okay? Here's that question. Ask yourself it this morning. What do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility? What is it that you are counting on today that makes you accepted? What is it that you are counting on that gives you a sense of good standing with God? Because I'll tell you what, your answer to this question is often going to reveal something besides Jesus that you are finding your righteousness in. That instead of recognizing your brokenness and your need for him, you find something else. And you begin to pretend that that's good enough to make you right with God. Again, recognizing uh, uh, that we stand before God isn't on what we do. It's not on our, our, our good works. It's on what Jesus has done. It's his righteousness, his perfection, his sacrifice. And so when our life isn't anchored on that... When we aren't taking our identity and our value and our acceptance because of what Christ has done for us, instead we pretend. And we begin to uh, uh, develop these false sources of righteousness that give us reputation, that give us worth, that give us value, where we feel better about ourselves. We feel like, man, I am something for God. And so we, we diminish our sin, we diminish our struggles, and we exaggerate other areas of our life. So here's, here's some examples of what that looks like. For some of us, we have this sense of job righteousness, okay? We look and we think, well, I'm a hard worker. Like, look at my work. I'm successful in my work. I'm talented. Uh, My company is growing more than other people. I'm moving up the corporate ladder. And so therefore, because of how good of an employee I am, of course, of course, God approves of me more. Of course, God is, is blessing me. God is saving me because I'm such a good employee and I work so hard. And look at all the success uh, in my job. That is a job righteousness. That is us trying to take our righteousness not on what Christ has done, on something else. So for some of us, it comes from family righteousness. Okay, this is where somebody says, well, I come from the right bloodlines. Like my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my, my family, they're, man, they're great Christians. They, they've been serving the church for a long time, and, and I got some of that in my blood, right? Just... Runs in the family. Or that becomes, well, of course my kids turned out right. Because I made all the right decisions. I did things just perfect as a parent. So, of course, my kids turned out right. And, of course, those other people whose kids are out of control, it's because, you know, they weren't as good of a parent as me. You see what we do there? Instead of acknowledging, hey, maybe it's God who had something to do with that. Maybe it's the grace of God that your kids have turned out decent. We take credit for it. We pretend. Intellectual righteousness. This is where we think, you know what? I'm better read. I'm more articulate. I'm more culturally savvy. You know, I, I, I got the degrees at the right schools. And that just makes me uh, more mature than other people. Again, we're pretending. Pretending that because we're intellectually advanced, that, that makes us better than other people. That makes us not as much of a sinner. Mercy righteousness. Mercy righteousness. This is where, hey, I care about the poor and the disadvantaged in the way that everybody else should, right? I'm such a good person. Everybody else should do it just like me. They should love the broken. They should love the, the whatever. Church righteousness. This is where someone comes in and says, well, I, I go to church every week. 
I put money in the offering. I serve in the nursery. Like I, all those little babies with the runny noses, I go back there and I love on them for an hour and a half and I'm so excited to hand them back. Like I do that. And so they're obviously God, God prefers me over other people, right? Because of how, you know, how good I am in church. Or maybe it's our legalistic attitudes, our legalistic righteousness. I don't show, I don't smoke, I don't chew, I don't go with girls who do. And so therefore, God likes me more than other people because I do those things, because I'm a good person. Political righteousness. You know, if you really loved God, then you'd vote just like me. Man, God's not a political party, though. That's the thing. Tolerance righteousness. I'm open-minded and charitable to those who don't agree with me. In fact, I'm a lot like Jesus in that way, right? Listen, these are things, these are things that if we are going to be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves this question, ask ourselves this question, what do I count on to give me a sense of personal credibility, acceptance, and good standing? We point to these things and say, look, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm not as bad as I, I really am. I'm a good person. These are sources of functional righteousness that disconnect us from the power of the gospel. That disconnect us from, from what God wants to do in our life because we aren't resting in what Christ has done for us. Now we're resting on something different. And in addition to us missing out on the power of the gospel, this becomes a way that we judge and exclude others, especially in the church. And this is one of the terrible things that, that I get tired of hearing about in the church. People say, well, I went to church and people just judged me. Well, listen, if we understand the gospel, if we understand that, listen, we don't bring anything to the table. All we bring is our sin. Jesus does the work. When we understand that, there's no more judging. Because we're all on the same level. We're all sinners. We're all dependent on God, not on ourselves. What about the second tendency to distort the gospel? To perform? So here's, here's a question I'd have you ask yourself this morning. Here's a question you need to write down and ask yourself on a regular basis. As God thinks of you right now, as God thinks of you right now, depending on what your weekend looked like, the last week, the last month, as God thinks of you right now, what is the look on his face? God disappointed with you? Is God, do you feel God is angry at you? Feel like God has a reason to be angry with you? Well, maybe God's just indifferent. So look on God's face, that look of get your act together. You're in my church. Get your act together. Get, get, get things put back in order the way they're supposed to be. You need to do better than this. Is that the look that God has for you? Listen, if you imagine anything other than satisfied because of what Jesus has done for you, then you have fallen into a performance mindset. That you have pursued religion and not Christianity. Because the truth of the gospel is that in Jesus... In what Jesus has done for us, God is deeply satisfied with you. Not based on what you've done. Not based on what you haven't done. Not based on how you blew it this weekend. 
In Jesus, God is satisfied because he looks and sees what Jesus did in your place. He sees Jesus paying for the penalty for your sin. He sees Jesus giving his righteousness to you. So you aren't held accountable for that. You're held accountable for what he's done for you. In fact, based on Jesus' death and resurrection, God has adopted you as his own son and daughter. And listen, when we fail to to root our identity in what Jesus has done for us, that's when we slip into a performance-driven religion. Where it's like, yeah, there's some Jesus in the mix of it, but I gotta have some whipped cream on top. I gotta add this other stuff to it to make it. You don't. This is where we have to come back to the very basis of the gospel. This is why I want to make sure if you're not a Christian here today, let me tell you what it's all about. It's about you and I bringing our brokenness, our selfishness, our deceit, our pride. We don't bring anything else to the table. We bring our sin. And Jesus goes to the cross. He pays the penalty for that sin, according to Scripture. Jesus lived a life. He fulfilled uh, hundreds of prophecies from the Old Testament related to the Messiah. Listen, this is what he did. He goes to the cross. He takes your sin upon himself. He, He pays the penalty of your sin. And he dies. And he's buried. And three days later, he raises from the grave. Conquers Satan, death, hell. Conquers it all. And what do we bring? We bring our sin. And what does he do? Everything. If you're not a Christian here today, I want you to understand that's what the gospel is. That's the core of Christianity. What Jesus has done in our place. I'm not asking you to come and, 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 and live like me. I'm asking you to come and put your faith in Jesus. And if you're a Christian in here today, Man, this message is just as much for you. As the Apostle Paul told the church in Galatia, I'm astonished how easy it is for us to turn away from the gospel. How easy it is for us to turn away from from the grace of Christ and begin to say, well, you also have to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And don't let our church be like that. Don't let our church be one of those places where you got to jump through holes to find Jesus. Let's be a church that is gospel-centered. That we preach Christ and Christ crucified, and that's it. That that is the life-changing message of the entire scripture. This is the message that the world needs to hear. And when we fail to root our identity in what Jesus has done for us, It leads us to pretend or perform to distort the gospel of Jesus Christ. That we imagine if we were just better people, then God would approve of us more fully. And living like that will sap your joy. It'll sap the delight out of following Jesus. It leaves us wallowing in a joyless and dutiful obedience that is not what Christianity is meant to be like. So here's the simple response this morning. Here's a simple response. When you ask yourselves those two questions, when you ask yourselves those two questions, what do you give, what do you count on to give you a sense of personal credibility and acceptance? 
Would you take a minute today and just repent? Just say, you know what, God? Yeah. I've been really feeling like, man, I have so much to offer because of this. I'm such a good person. Of course you love me more than other people because I'm a hard worker. Because I'm loving. Would you repent of that today? Would you just say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I've distorted the gospel. The second question this morning, as God thinks of you right now, what is the look on his face? Listen, if you have that answer being anything other than satisfied because of Jesus, would you just repent and say, God, I want to experience your grace today. I want to experience that that look of satisfaction, not based on what I've done, not based on what I haven't done, based on what Jesus has done. Because of what Jesus has done for me in my place, God, you're satisfied. God, you're pleased. God, I'm forgiven. I invite you this morning to repent, to turn and to trust the simplicity of the gospel that we would be a church, that we would be a people that live that gospel-centered life.